I'm staring at my midwife as she's giving me instructions. My husband's to my right, and there's an oxygen mask on my face. Push, push. That's it, that's it. That's the push. That's it, right there. That's it, babe. Good job. I can't believe we made it this far. I can't believe we're all alive. Considering only a few weeks ago, I thought I was going to die. I grew up hearing the stereotype that Latinos are fertile human beings, expected to produce large families. And this stereotype was mostly confirmed everywhere I looked. My grandparents all came from large families, and my maternal grandmother had eight children. I have 32 first cousins. Yes, I know all their names. Suffice it to say that in our Latino community, there's a familial expectation for procreation. Many of us who come from Catholic upbringings are taught that children are a blessing and a part of a step in fulfilling our purpose in life. This is my personal story about the guilt we feel when we're not living up to those expectations. It's also a story about loss, grief, and finding courage. There are experiences in this story that many can relate to, but few are often invited to share. You're listening to the Pulsa Podcast. We'll be right back. It's October of 2019, and I'm about to take a pregnancy test. I'm not sure, but I have the feeling that I'm pregnant. How? Because I've been here before, yet we're still childless. Only this time, I don't feel excited. I feel scared because I've already gone through a miscarriage. And even though I've been doing all of the right things, even before trying to get pregnant again, like taking my prenatal vitamins every day, exercising, and even avoiding alcohol, I still have no control over the outcome. And like me, many other people out there have experienced this feeling. According to the National Library of Medicine, 25% of known pregnancies in the United States end in miscarriage, which is a pregnancy loss before 20 weeks. After 20 weeks, the CDC estimate that about 24,000 babies are stillborn every year. Knowing that the odds of miscarriage increase after the first one, I am compelled to record this journey as a way to help me process all of the feelings and thoughts currently inside my head. And so there I am sitting on my bathroom floor, staring at another pregnancy test. Okay, it's been three minutes. The C line is very clear and noticeable, and the T line is also very clear. Oh my gosh. So I call out to my husband. Doug, can you come in here, please? Doug sees the results and has the same reaction I do. Because of my previous miscarriage, we're both cautiously happy. That same night, I have a secret conversation with my voice memo app. I wish, like, I wish I could just be, like, super, super happy. <sighs> There are just so many things going through my mind right now. Like, what if it happens again? I'm scared. I never want to go through that again. It sucked. Seven weeks later, I start feeling the first trimester. Think of every pregnancy symptom you've heard of, and I have it. The mood swings, the nausea, the sleepiness, the crying. Oh my God, the crying. It's now the middle of November, and I can't keep control of my emotions. I've been keeping track of my hormonal changes in my video journal. I cry at commercials. I cry at movie previews. I understand that it's probably the hormones, but oh my God. And the other thing that I'm realizing is that I can't believe how disrespectful and mean I have been to my mother after all she went through to have me. The f***ed up part about having a miscarriage is how messed up your hormones get. I remember crying all the time from sadness and also from just feeling out of whack. It's not that different from being pregnant, only it's worse because you don't have a baby to look forward to. 
I remember crying every time I would see a little boy or girl, and I would get choked up and my eyes would fill with tears. At eight weeks of pregnancy, it's finally time for the ultrasound. I can't wait to see our baby for the first time. Doug and I wait patiently as the technician searches around for a moment, and then she says, So, first thing, yes, when you're looking here, mm-hmm. I see two sacks here. <gasps> What's that mean? So, oh my gosh. there are two babies. Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh! <laughs> are you serious? Oh my god! Oh my god. Buy one, get one free. <laughs> there goes my golf game. With the amazing news, Doug and I leave the doctor's office feeling like we won the lottery. I mean, we're getting two babies. We can't even believe it. We're so lucky. It almost feels like God is helping us make up for what we lost before. For my part, I feel grateful and at the same time, cautiously optimistic because of what happened before. It's week nine (laughs) and the nausea just started getting worse because of the miscarriage in the summer. You know, I'm a little bit nervous about anything that I feel that doesn't feel normal or whatever, you know. But obviously, I called the doctor. She said I should be fine. Tomorrow will be 11 weeks pregnant. Anyway, I'm waiting for Doug to get home because I asked him to bring me a junior bacon cheeseburger from Wendy's, and he is very late. Doug finally gets home, and I devour the burger. I'm in this stage where I can only eat what I immediately crave. Otherwise, I can't eat anything. Now with a full belly, I have one more thought. I think everyone's doing all right. We go in for a checkup next Friday. So I'm confident that everything's going to be fine and the babies are growing. I still have, you know, that PTSD that I'm dealing with as well. Anyway, I'm trying not to worry too much. On Friday, December 13th, I wake up feeling like a kid on Christmas morning. I'm super excited because today we're headed to our first heartbeat checkup. At the doctor's office, the OB has trouble finding the heartbeat for one of the two babies. Did you hear that one, that fast one? Okay, good. I cannot find a spot where you are not and the baby is. Um. She says there's no cause for alarm. Sometimes it's hard to separate the heartbeats when you're having twins. So she sends me to their ultrasound technician for a second look. And she finds two heartbeats. I'm looking at the screen now, watching both babies, and Doug and I start breathing easy again. As I'm watching the ultrasound of my two kiddos intently, I'm not noticing that the technician quietly excuses herself to leave the room. When she comes back, the doctor is with her, and she has a look of panic on her face, and I think her hands are shaking. Her first words are, there's a problem with baby A. I turn to Doug as I feel like a thousand pounds of rocks are raining on me. Anencephaly, she says. I start bawling. She says something about the baby's head not forming all the way, but I'm crying so hard that I can no longer listen. What I don't know is that this isn't the worst part. It's December 15th. I'm now in my nearing the end of the first trimester of pregnancy. We're scheduled to see the high-risk OB next week. It seems like a lifetime to wait. I found this website uh, called anencephaly.info, which I'm so grateful for because I was reading personal stories from many other mothers. What happens is that a lot of the time the baby will develop, like will keep growing, 
but it won't grow as much as the other one, as the one that's developing normal. So when they're born, um, sometimes they're born alive, sometimes they're not born alive. I know I have to get through it. I know, like, I'm mad and I'm sad and I'm angry and I don't know what to feel. I never thought that this would happen to me. Every day after December 13th, 2019, I wondered this question. What did I do wrong? According to a report released by the CDC in 2019, birth defects are significantly more prevalent in Hispanic and Native American communities. The risk factors are not well known, though according to the March of Dimes website, there are some findings that point to possible social factors, like access to preconception and prenatal care, age and weight, pollution and environmental exposures to strong chemicals like pesticides, lead, radiation, or chemotherapy medicines, or secondhand smoke during pregnancy. But other than being 35 when I conceived, most of these factors don't apply to me or the way that I live my life. A few days after receiving the devastating news, Doug and I meet with the specialist, and I get my first 3D ultrasound. This is the first time we receive an official confirmation that baby A has a birth defect, and it's called an encephaly. Baby A will not survive after birth, and that's even if we make it to term. I ask the doctor to worst case it for me, and he tells me that if the baby dies inside my womb, it would probably force us to go into labor and deliver much earlier. All of this is scary to hear, especially when he starts talking about preeclampsia and other life-threatening things that come with high-risk pregnancies. For the next eight weeks, they'll be monitoring my cervix very closely to make sure it stays close and I don't go into labor early. Even though the doctor gives me some answers, I still have no idea how to feel, and I spend most of my days trying to figure out how the hell we're going to survive this, because there are days that I feel like I'm dying inside. Today is Friday. December 27th. I'm now 14 weeks and two days pregnant and I'm still nauseous and I should be feeling really happy but I'm not as happy. I really envisioned coming home with two babies. Now that's not gonna happen. Now we're just gonna come home with one baby and I don't know. I think a part of me is still somewhat in, in denial and wanting to kind of believe that maybe we will come home with two babies, two healthy babies. Some days I'm fine and some days I cry all the time. Mostly I'm confused. Besides struggling with my emotions, I also feel like I'm in a constant argument with time. I spend my days doing the math. Can we make it one more day? Can we make it one more week? Every Wednesday for the next eight weeks, I thank God, the stars, and everything that makes it possible for us to keep going. Because every week we get closer to our due date. And that means we all have a better chance of surviving the labor and delivery. But every day that goes by is also one less day that we have with baby A. On February 24th, I record again. I feel guilty sometimes because, you know, like, we have stuff on the registry and we're starting to get some gifts and the baby stuff comes in and it's just for one. And then sometimes I feel guilty because like I'm constantly thinking about, okay, what middle name are we gonna give Renzi? 
I feel guilty because I'm not doing the same kind of attention or emphasis for Azul, which is our other baby that we decided to name Azul. I just got tired of calling them baby A and baby B. I really wanted to honor both babies. Even though nothing about my pregnancy is normal, I'm determined to make everything else go as normal and as cliche as possible. Our baby shower is coming up in a few weeks in Ohio. I started a Pinterest board with ideas for the baby's room, for the nursery. Shortly after recording the last message, I start writing to my kids in a journal. April 9th, 2020. We've been together for almost seven months now. So many things have happened. But the most unpredictable one is this COVID-19 virus. It's a virus that started in China about four months ago, then came to the U.S., It started with a few cases, but spread so fast that it's officially turned into a worldwide pandemic. It's incredible. But in less than a month, the world is completely different. Papa and I have been social distancing for almost four weeks, meaning we stay home and we don't go anywhere except for a walk or the grocery store. We've stayed busy with home decorating projects, but not everyone has been as lucky. Millions of people around the world are now unemployed, and a lot of businesses are closing down for good. There are no sport activities allowed, no concerts, no parties, and kids are also home from school. Of course, this means our baby shower was canceled, but we discovered something kind of cool. We had a virtual one instead, and it was actually fun. On the other hand, I still go to the doctor every two weeks to check on you guys. But Papa is not allowed to go with me anymore. Because of the pandemic, I have to go alone. And when I arrive, they have to check my temperature. They ask me if I have virus symptoms like coughing or shortness of breath. And everyone has to wear a face mask that covers our mouth and nose. The day before the governor of Arizona ordered restaurants and events to shut down, there was a text message going around saying that there would likely be a severe shortage of food. People were running to the stores, emptying shelves and lining up just to get inside. I couldn't find any toilet paper two days later. And last night I had a panic attack. It was the first time in a few weeks that I felt like we might not survive this pregnancy. If this food shortage is real, I'm worried that I won't be able to get enough food to stay healthy and feed you guys. Your dad helped me and told me we'll be fine, but I'm still freaking out. We can't even hang out with anyone because if Doug or I get sick, we could be quarantined from seeing you guys after you're born. It's already happened to women in other parts of the country and the world. Some of them have even given birth without their partners there. A few days after writing this, I wake up in the middle of the night feeling panicked. 3.34 in the morning, and I can't sleep. I think I'm stressed, maybe, too, because of all this coronavirus shit going on. This is probably one of the hardest times. I'm struggling to stay calm and to stay sane. And every day, I feel like it gets worse. The news gets worse and the, the numbers get bigger and I just, um, I just want to know that we're going to be okay. Abril 29. Today is April 29th. Just did my morning meditation. I'm 32 weeks pregnant today. Yay! My feelings are all over the place. As I get closer and closer to delivery, we have just been preparing what we're going to eat, <laughs> who's going to be allowed to come over, who's not, because that's the other fun thing during COVID-19. 
I have another ultrasound appointment tomorrow and we're checking on growth. Good morning, how are you? Yes, I have a 9 a.m. ultrasound. The ultrasound technician is going through her usual 45-minute thorough check. She's measuring each baby, and Renzi's growth is normal, but Azul is another story. So you're 32 weeks, mm -hmm. um, but the baby measures 26 weeks, so we're like a full six weeks behind. This means she's no longer growing very much, if at all. But her heart is still strong, and she's holding on. One of the biggest questions I had was, what will my baby look like? And encephaly is such a rare condition that you don't always know until birth. Like, does maybe I have a head at, at all? Like any kind of face? So I, I can't see. I can't see the front of the face, mm -hmm. but typically they have up to their to eyes, the eyes right? right? And then this part is gone. The tech touches the top of her head to visually illustrate the part that Azul will likely be missing. So the baby would have a face here, yeah, and and most. And most of the time you get an idea of what they look like. Early May arrives and the final preparations start. It is May 7th. I had a very interesting conversation with the bereavement doula about options for Azul, um, for body donation and organ donation. Doug and I decide that we want Azul's life to have a deeper impact on our community. So we agreed to donate her organs for research. And there are all kinds of logistical things involved with this that I never thought I would have to do. To cemetery office, let me get someone to assist you. One moment, please. Thank you for holding this day. Speaking, how can I help you today? Hi, um, I was calling about questions regarding um, what we would need to do for cremation um, of uh, one of our babies. For a, for a baby? Yes. June 1st, 2020. This past month has been insane. The governor of Arizona has allowed some businesses to reopen and people are starting to go out in public again. The most difficult part right now, aside from the global pandemic, is that we're also entering into a serious social crisis. Last week, another person was murdered at the hands of police. The man's name is George Floyd. And according to the news, he was arrested because he had bought cigarettes with a fake bill and was intoxicated. He was unarmed. And when he was arrested, the police officer put him on the ground, face down, and then put his knee on the man's neck for eight minutes, regardless of the fact that the man repeatedly told him he couldn't breathe. The man died in this position. And when the ambulances arrived, they didn't even try to revive him. Fue horrible. Someone recorded it all. Y entonces el país explotó. People have been marching in the streets every day and night, and there have been constant violent encounters with police, people breaking into businesses, setting cars on fire, and smashing windows. A lot of people are feeling angry, sad, and hopeless. Papa and I are worried, sad, and angry. We're both worried about the kind of world that you will be born into. Black people have been abused and hurt for centuries, and we cannot allow this to continue. Por el momento, we're all at the mercy of the statewide curfew. This means no one is supposed to be out of the house after 8 p.m. unless they're working. In the news, they said that this is the first time since Martin Luther King was assassinated that there is a curfew in so many cities around the country. And in the midst of all of this unrest, you two, Renzi and Azul, are about to be born. 
Time is a struggle for me. So many times throughout this pregnancy, I focused on making time go faster because all I wanted to do was give Renzi the best beginning in life. But in doing that, I didn't realize that I was rushing to the ending as well. The time when Azul would no longer be with us. And this makes me feel guilty. The past few months, I've connected with two babies, but I only get to bring one home. Will she feel pain? I ask my doctor at the final checkup. No, he says. She's missing the part of her brain that allows that connection. But if she can't feel pain, will she feel my touch? I ask myself. Will she know how much she means to me? There are no logical answers anyone can give me, but maybe this is not a time to think logically. Death, hopelessness, injustices. In less than nine months, our lives have been turned completely upside down. And somehow I have to find it in myself to think optimistically. I have to believe in something good. I can feel the protective motherly instinct switch flip on. Every part of me wants to hold my two babies and let them know that we will all be well, even if only for a few moments. June 2020. Wow. Keep pushing. Keep coming. He's almost here. Renzi comes into the world first, and Azul arrives about a minute later. A few minutes later, lying next to her brother on my chest, Azul passes away. On Mother's Day week of 2021, Doug and I hiked to our favorite spot in the mountains of Phoenix to spread Azul's ashes. It took me a long time to let go of her physically. Emotionally, I'll never let go of her. All I can do is thank her for holding on and being there for me and her brother. Gracias, Azul Alexandria. I can't tell you how many times people have told me to have faith. Everything happens for a reason. Well, this entire experience taught me that sometimes shitty things happen to good people for no greater reason at all. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you could have prevented it. Are there things I can say that I've learned from this experience? Sure. But that doesn't take away the pain and it doesn't erase the guilt that comes with losing a baby. Before we wrap, if you know somebody who's gone through pregnancy and infant loss, here's what you can do to help. Don't ask them when they're going to try again or suggest that they should have more kids. You don't know the kind of mental and emotional pressure they already feel without your adding to it. If you're someone who's experienced pregnancy or infant loss, share your story, even if it's only with a few people. Hearing other people's stories has helped me process my grief and feel less isolated. What I have learned is that we all need community and support, not just during the hard times, but every day. I've learned we could all stand to be more empathetic and respectful of each other's struggles and life choices. It's very easy to pass judgment when you've never lived through someone's experience. You can subscribe to the Pulsa Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend to give us a listen. Have questions or story ideas to send our way? Send us an email to info at projectpulsa.org. This episode was produced by me, Maribel Quesada-Smith. Editorial oversight by Charlie Garcia. Music and audio engineering by Julian Blackmore. Hey. 
Hey Pulso fam, I want to tell you all about Atlas Lingue, a Studio 80 podcast about language, culture, and communication. Have you ever wondered what your cat is trying to tell you? Or how Disney Pixar writers craft stories that resonate across numerous languages? Atlas Lingue host Luis Lopez explores these topics and so much more. It's a show about the confusing, wonderful, and weird world of language, and this season, they're diving deep into the language of culture online. They're interviewing content creators from different countries who document their daily lives and cultural backgrounds on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. New episodes air every other Monday wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch all the interviews on their YouTube channel at 80 Podcasts.